This is Purple Elephant, where I bring the proverbial elephant to the table in order to deconstruct ableism, prejudice and misconceptions. On today's episode, we have Steph Curtis. Steph is a blogger raising awareness about pathological demand avoidance, and that's entirely what this episode is about today. PDA is on the autism spectrum, and we find out what it's like to be a mum of two girls when one has PDA and the family dynamics and support she gets. Welcome to Purple Elephant, Steph. How are you today? Hi, I'm doing well today, thank you. So Steph, would you mind introducing yourself to the audience for those that don't know who you are? Sure, so I'm Steph and I have two girls and um, I've been blogging about my two girls for over 10 years now. And the reason I started blogging is because our youngest girl um, was diagnosed with autism at the age of two and a half. I started the blog to try and uh, keep a diary really. It was just a very basic online diary of the kind of things that happened that kind of almost explained um, the autism or what her behaviours were at the time when she was young. I think everybody very, um, you know, instantly, quickly just thought, oh, it's just typical toddler behaviour when she won't do something or she doesn't want to do something but I think I could see that there was more to it than that and you know after the diagnosis and then when I found out more about PDA as well um, then it just kind of for me it helped to explain to others so they could understand why I was doing what I was doing and why she was doing what she was doing. Yeah. It's been a while. Would you mind explaining what PDA is please? Yeah, so PDA stands for Pathological Demand Avoidance, which is some very big words. It's actually a, a type of profile of autism, and it's just kind of a little bit different to what some people might understand as autism. I think there's still a lot of people who don't understand everything. Well, people are probably never going to understand everything about autism, but there's, there's kind of different patterns. And we came across it, I think, because when our daughter was diagnosed with autism, we met up with other parents who had girls with autism, because a lot of people say that there's quite a difference between girls with autism and boys with autism. Whereas actually the truth is that everyone with autism is different. So, yeah. but it does, you know, sometimes it follows that the girls, you know, and the way they present um, are slightly different to some of the boys, but it all just depends on what co-occurring conditions there are and all of that. But what happened was I was meeting with a group of um, mums whose daughters all had autism. Um, and they were all young, um, tiny bit older than Sasha, but every time I met with them, I'd think, oh, that doesn't really sound quite the same as my daughter. You know, they, they all very much related to each other and what their girls were doing. Yeah. Um, and it just was different for my girl. <laughs> so I kind of, I started Googling a bit more about why would it be different for her? Um, and yeah, on Google, then I came across the PDA Society. Um, who are a group of volunteers who all have um, PDA in the family and they've got a lot of great stuff online um, and that's the first place I recommend anybody goes to to find out more about it. So with pathological demand avoidance there's some key characteristics would you mind explaining what they are please? Yeah so um, what, what it said is that um, the children or adults as well who also can have or do have pathological demand avoidance because it is as lifelong as, as autism is a lifelong 
condition. They're said to resist and avoid everyday demands. So even things that we might find easy to do, um, it just becomes difficult for them to do because it is a demand. Um, and there's so many demands in everyday life that we don't realize until you start thinking about them things like you know even getting up and getting out of bed is a demand and you know having to brush your teeth putting your clothes on you know definitely going to school is a big demand having to sit in you know, certain chairs all of those kind of things so there's a lot of those and they build up and the anxiety about being able to or not being able to do those things builds up as well then when you would see a lot of resisting or avoiding and that's certainly what our girl did from a very young age you know, and it became it's become now very difficult for her to leave the house but even when younger getting out even to do an activity that she really liked so something like swimming she's always loved but making it out of the house to go swimming you know she would refuse because she was finding it too difficult something else another characteristic is being sociable and which is something again is not often linked with autism although again that's a mass generalization because obviously there are very sociable autistic people as well but it's very common or certainly is tends to be one of those features of pga so and they say it's sociable but actually lacking depth in their understanding so yeah our daughter is very sociable she loves other people but that kind of understanding of social rules and social etiquette you know isn't necessarily there come generally from quite a young age People with PDA tend to use social strategies to avoid demand. So instead of just saying, no, I don't want to do it, they'll give other reasons. They'll try and distract the person who's asking them to do something or come up with reasons that don't make so much sense, such as, oh, my legs don't work or I'm a dog today. I can't do it. Things like that, excuses for not doing things rather than just, uh, I don't want to. <laughs> Um, they have excessive mood swings um, and switching very suddenly. That's quite a, a key feature. Um, so, and that is down to the high anxiety, really. They tend to be another one that I found, you know, our girl certainly was and set her apart from the other parents I was meeting with, is that she's very always been comfortable in role play and pretending to be something or someone else. And that is very common for, for a lot of children with PDA. We hear stories about them, you know, pretending or imagining that they are say a cat for you know months at a time and that's how they want everybody to address them because you know they're maybe struggling with themselves so, so they want to be something else um but and that's you know can be extreme but there are lots of children doing that um but the kind of idea of having a great imagination seems to be quite common for pda and being able to role play and put yourself in someone else's position and then the last sort of characteristic is obsessive behavior which um again is is known as a, an autistic trait generally but for those with PDA it tends to be more the focus is more on people rather than objects um, and you know that can be from a point of view where the person with PDA is very comfortable with somebody who understands them and understands their anxieties and therefore they don't want to let go of that person but also just uh, you know an intense or keen interest in somebody else and what they're doing. So all of those things, the main things, when our girl was young, the reason we went um, and ended up at the paediatrician for a diagnosis was because she had a language delay. And that was initially thought to be quite a common feature of PDA as well. I think now they've, they've kind of changed the criteria a little bit and said that's not necessarily a key factor, but it is fairly common that there's a language delay, but with a good deal of catch up. She's not a great talker or conversationalist, but the kind of language she uses is certainly very advanced. But um, yeah, it took her a while to get to that point. So, yeah, that's kind of PDA in a nutshell, I think. That's really interesting. I feel that 
as someone who's followed your blog for years, I, I know a lot of these points because you're very good at reiterating them and bringing them up. And especially on your blog Facebook page, you might explain maybe one of the key characteristics and how that equates to Sasha on that day. And yeah. I find that really interesting because then I can, for me as someone that doesn't have autism or doesn't know anyone personally with autism, it then mm -hmm. gives me a real depth of, for you to then sit there and explain that this is her um, behavior today. But I'm explaining it because this isn't just a teenage behavior. This isn't just her being for example stroppy this is genuinely her having a really tough day and not having the language or the emotional capacity at that exact moment to completely describe what's going on with her and i find that really really interesting because it's taught me so much with all the key characteristics is there one that sasha i guess reacts with more often and you find kind of the toughest to deal with in order to support her you know, that's probably changed over time. I think, you know, now where she's 13, we've had 10 years of kind of living the way we do, which, and that's one of the key things about PDA is you really need to change the way, or I need to change the way I parent um, and kind of what's expected from society um, is not necessarily what we now get to do in this house. And I feel lucky that we have an older daughter because, you know, I was, I do parent her in a typical manner. But for Sasha, that just didn't work. And that's, you know, again, how we were kind of led to PDA. Um, but I, I would parent in that typical manner as I was brought up, if I could, because it's much easier. There was a lot to, um, you know, to PDA parenting is kind of about being on your toes and second guessing things and having a range of options, always having an exit plan. There's lots, I mean, there's kind of a lot of strategies that go into every day with PDA. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's it's a challenge, but I, I share because I think that um, you know it helps other families to know that they're not alone. And mm -hmm. as you were saying, the change, the challenges that we have now are different to those that we had, um, you know, when she was younger. And anxiety is probably, you know, it's more now that it feels like her biggest challenge now. Whereas um, when she was younger, you know, really the sensory issues maybe were bigger, and that's that's quite a common um, autistic um issue i would say the sensory um troubles but you know the, there were other things linked in with that you know and the fact that she wouldn't wear shoes at all she has had to have socks that are seamless that kind of thing you know but that has added to her not being able to leave the house on certain days because the clothes don't feel right so that kind of got bundled up with the whole pda thing um but the other thing i always think we're lucky in is that sasha's um She's always done more avoiding than she has um, reacting. There's the whole fight, fight, flight or freeze response generally, which is what the behavior you see when the demands have got too much and when um, you know, a child is getting to the meltdown point. Um, and Sasha very much was a freeze and she'd curl into a mushroom. She'd hide under a duvet. She still does these things. So she doesn't you know, become violent or freak out or really draw attention to herself so much mm -hmm. other than not doing something. Um, so, you know, we, we're lucky in that that hasn't you know, been an extra challenge for us, like I know it is for many parents. And I did training for the PDA Society and work with a lot of parents doing parent workshops. So I know kind of the range, um, you know, of PDA behaviours and what can happen um, in different families. And I just feel so much for families who are struggling. And that's, I guess, why I keep blogging about it. 
want to help other people you know find ways of not um not getting stuck in that rut of thinking that some things have to happen in that typical parenting fashion and yeah. um, you just kind of you know, we certainly have learned to be more flexible because sasha needed it like i said yeah. our older daughter didn't need it but sasha did so we had that um that balance to see and that has really helped us yeah i think that your your blog is a fantastic resource but you have a fantastic community i can really see that with the responses from people within the comments and on your facebook page especially you've got such support i don't know how many people tell you this often but you really are doing a fantastic job yeah, i know I that you, you're going through it too with sasha sasha's going through it your entire family's going through it but the fact that you are still taking the time to educate to share the goods and the bad days even even yourself if you're having a tough day you share that too and i think that being so raw and open and honest is is why you have such a fantastic community because you're not showing the highlight reel and to be fair i don't think most people who blog about disability in any impact it has on a person whether it's them who has a disability or a family member i don't think we do the highlight reel as such anyway but for example you put recently about how with covid and the lockdown Sasha really enjoys the chips from McDonald's but yeah. you, you couldn't get there because of the lockdown and that was yeah. that was tough for, for you as a family and for her to, to comprehend and understand although she understood to a degree it's it's the difficulty of if you have a routine or yeah. you have to change and have exit strategies as you say if that is one of your exit strategies that gives her kind of grounding and you don't have that anymore, then it must yeah. be really, really tough. So yeah. yeah, I, yeah, sorry. I'm just, I'm kind of just picking you up here, but I just, <laughs> I do. I'm, I'm in awe of how focused you are at being so supportive to others just by sharing your own story. And I think I not, not when to put myself down, but like if I go back to the beginning, I'd started a blog really, as I said, for me and a, a diary and to help kind of family and friends understand a bit more. And then, um, you know, as I carried on, I just felt it was really important to help Sasha that other people understand, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and Sasha, and then obviously more widely other people with PGA because it is there, it's very real. You know, some people question whether it's a real diagnosis but I think the support I get and the comments I get and how much people relate to this and um, you know it's clear that it's not made up this is you know what we live with this is our life and we just have to get on with that but I think one a message I always want to put across is that can't not won't idea so it's the the fact that you know people with PGA are they're not doing something because they just don't want to because they're a bit lazy or they don't fancy it <laughs> it's they're actually not able to you know for whatever reason whether it's a build-up of other demands or something specific about that demand you have to really be switched on to them to kind of understand what it is that is making that anxiety too high um, and then sort of you know act accordingly but really you kind of have to act in advance to try and avoid getting to that situation where you get the meltdown um so yeah I, i'm kind of i just want to spread the word really to help other people understand because i think you know as a toddler people people do make assumptions but it's not so bad because you're always in a family unit with the toddler anyway you know it's really difficult actually for for parents of a young child to be told that what they're doing is wrong and how they're handling their child is wrong 
none of us know, especially at that age when they're young. Look anyway, so <laughs> how do people think yeah. that's appropriate? <laughs> yeah, so and you, you kind of, you know, I've, after 10 years, I have grown a thick skin and you have to let some people are going to judge anyway and you let just have to let them do it but the more I can tell other people you know the reasons for what she's doing the more it helps her and others so that's kind of why I carry on blogging I think yeah absolutely so you were saying um just now about how the public perceptions especially with Sasha being a toddler and to now how have you found that just just as a parent and I know you just touched on it but I if if you wouldn't mind going into a bit more depth like emotionally like how how it is for for you as as a mum as a parent because you're already dealing with your child who yeah. has pda and then you're getting questions or stares or comments is there a piece of advice that you this is how it makes you feel as a human when you get these comments yeah i mean it's you know for me kind of the way i was brought up it's so different how we have to parent sasha and yeah to have other people make those judgments it is it feels embarrassing you know i kind of even without anybody saying anything to me you know i might notice that what my girl is doing is not what other parents would expect her to be doing and that they might have thoughts in their head and want to say things to me but you know it's kind of you just have to get on with it really you know and that's what i'd say to other parents is you have to you have to be comfortable with you know just doing what you think is best for your child and your family at the end of the day so that's kind of where we've come from with that but um but to the public you know i'd just say I, i'd hope that there would be less judging stage in england where we have to wear face masks and i know a lot of people are judging about that at the minute mm-hmm. um but you know for our girl that is too too difficult for her you know for sensory issues and anxiety reasons um, and she actually doesn't leave the house very much, so it's not a huge issue. But I know for lots of other families out there who actually, they, well, some single parents, for example, might have to take their children to the shops. They might not be able to wear a, a face mask. And then if other members of the public start challenging them, then, you know, that gets really difficult. And you get to a stage where, you know, people don't want to leave the home and become even more isolated. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's all sorts of... Um, Things go on with other people not understanding, which I guess brings me back to why I talk about it so much. <laughs> mm, absolutely. And there are just so many reasons. And with with disability as a whole, 75% of people registered with, a, registered with a disability is classed as an invisible disability. So we can't see it. With, with someone like me, before I lost my sight completely, you wouldn't know I was blind because I refused to use a cane and I refused to um, be guided or ask for support in the ways that I I now feel is my true independence, using a cane or a guide dog. And so public perceptions are rife anyway. And I really think that, yeah, we do have to be far more compassionate to each other. Have you heard of the lanyard scheme? Yeah, so the sunflower lanyard. Yeah. I posted about that the other day on my page and I think the website is the Hidden, Hidden Disabilities website you know, where they um, where you can get hold of those. I think it's a great idea. Um, I think still not enough people widely know about it. So that's another thing I will keep talking about because I think, I mean, and again, Sasha won't wear a lanyard. So, but, you know, for me, because I'm always with her, I would wear the lanyard for her um, yeah. in situations where we felt that would help. So um yeah it's a great idea i find it difficult because we're at this weird stage where i uh in society i believe we shouldn't we shouldn't be judging each other regardless on top of the fact that 
invisible disabilities, as I said, 75% of people that live with a disability, they're invisible anyway. But having a lanyard scheme with a sunflower lanyard scheme is, is really, really good because it allows those people who aren't vocal and, and, and don't want to talk about it it gives them the opportunity to say that this is why but I don't know what your thoughts are are on it as a scheme in general do you feel that you're highlighting someone's disability when they actually may not have wanted to declare that yeah so that's really interesting I mean I guess people probably don't wear them if they don't want to highlight it so but then you know it is one way of getting help so it's it's a challenge because you can't you can't expect other people to be able to see your hidden disability if it's hidden I guess is the point so um yeah you'd, you'd hope everybody was more compassionate in life generally um but I guess this is just one way of bringing it to the fore helping people get support when they need to but yeah it's interesting the whole yeah idea about um disabilities and yeah should we highlight them should people stand out or do we just want them to you know want everyone with a disability to blend in in society it's that I guess there's got to be steps along the way, you know, and I do think society is improving in terms of, you know, what we do. I mean, I was so pleased about the news about new buildings having to now um, put changing places, toilets in, you know, the new legislation that's been passed for that. It's brilliant news. And there, there are steps. That obviously, it's not going to change all the other places out there instantly that, that need the changing places, but it's a step forward. And I think as long as we're always moving forward, not backwards that's a good thing yeah that's a really beautiful point there so we were talking uh, a little while ago about the support you've received in your page what support have you been given by say social services the education system the government to help you as a family with Sasha and help Sasha um you know integrate into society and feel like she isn't alone yeah and so where I sit at the minute it's it's easy to spring to mind the answer that there hasn't been an awful lot of support and I think a lot of parents would relate to that as well but that's you know we're at a stage now where Sasha um she doesn't have a school to attend she very rarely leaves the house um and you know I'm struggling with those things if I think back to the start um you know we were lucky again that Sasha was diagnosed so young and so quickly um, and that was, you know, I really believe we just had a very good paediatrician, a very good speech therapist initially who saw and then referred her on. Um, and yeah, so we didn't have a huge long wait, which I know lots of families start with. Um, I think back in those days, then my thoughts was, oh, well, maybe it's very obvious then if, you know, they've been able to do this diagnose so young. But it wasn't really that. It was then, um, you know, Sasha in a lot of ways was quite like her peers. The autistic teachers didn't necessarily stand out. So um so yeah that's you know we started off really well luckily and um we did go to a great or she went to a great mainstream primary school who put in support um we did apply for the, the paperwork which is now called the ehcp education health and care plan um so she's had one of those which really just back up kind of for her for everyone to get together you know once a year and talk about her needs um so yeah her her Schooling was um, good, you know, and helpful people in there, some brilliant people. I mean, one I'd highlight was the school chef, who when she moved from the infant school to the junior school, you know, took it upon herself to write a whole kind of, you know, a side of A4 about what Sasha did and didn't like about the food, you know, very particular, but she understood that really mattered to Sasha. 
So she went and spoke to the new school chef and kind of handed over that information, you know, without being asked to. And that meant a lot to us at the time. That's amazing. Um, and other kind of, you know, she's had some TAs that have been brilliant along the way. So there's that kind of support. And we, you know, like you said about the cage, that the kind of people, it helps me. I always said blogging is like free therapy, really. <laughs> um, you know, I, I share, but it helps to share. And, um, you know, I hope that the people who, read and comment it's helping them also to feel not so alone so that's kind of a, a huge support for me and obviously all my my family and friends you know we've been really lucky that um our families do support and understand and listen to us um, and I know a lot of families don't or find that very difficult because it's not typical parenting what we have to do so it's not what's expected um of a child shall we say but um but that's you know we like I said we're lucky so I'm, I'm very pleased along the way there has been support like that in terms of education not good at the minute and um, social care we've just kind of started down that path so we you know it, it becomes more worrying actually as Sasha gets closer to adulthood because we don't know whether and no parent knows whether their child is going to be independent but most parents can kind of assume that and we know our eldest will be fine in whatever she chooses to do mm. but at this stage we don't really know about the future of Sasha or how we're going to get their helper and nurture her and all of those kind of things so I do feel we need more input at the moment that's a challenge mm. so you are essentially homeschooling Sasha how is that as a like a pressure on you as a parent and I'm guessing it isn't a road you chose you know if if the school the education system actually supported Sasha properly she would be yeah. in a school setting so how has that impacted you um, as, as a parent and as a household? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting actually because uh, lockdown has not changed much for us because Sasha came out of school last May. So she's actually been out of school 14 months now. Um, and I won't go into details about why that happened, but there, they, there has not been a suitable placement found for her in our county. So that's um, we've been struggling with that since then. You know, initially we were dealing with the fallout of what happened in her coming out of school. Um, but home educating is something I would actually, I'd love to do. My mum was a teacher. I kind of, I like the sound of, you know, doing project work and just being interested in life about you in general. And there's so much, you know, about disabilities and differences that I would love to teach about. But Sasha is um, very resistant to that, not because she doesn't like me. But part <laughs> of it is because um, I'm mum and, you know, I do all the other mum things for her. You know, I'm caring for her. So I'm not her teacher in her eyes. And yeah. so she doesn't want me to be a teacher. She does want to be in a school because she is very sociable and she wants to be around other children. And she likes the idea of school as long as it's fun. That's her idea of school. <laughs> so she's not all that interested in the work that you have to do in school, which is partly why it's difficult to home educate her as well. Yeah. So yeah, education is a real challenge for us, but we just, you know, I have to do what I can, which is very little into, again, in terms of typical formal education. Um, and we just amazingly, Sasha manages to teach herself an awful lot, though, via the iPad screen time, which is another issue I talk about a lot. You know how um, parents and lots of people out there think too much screen time is a bad thing. But actually, Sasha learns much better from that um, herself as she goes along through the days than, you know, than she does from someone else trying to force her to learn. So. So for us, it's been a good thing, but actually, but having such an extended period of time at home is not such a good thing. 
Yeah. Lockdown's been a bit better because actually I, I now I've got a husband and our other daughter at home. It means I can get out more. So, yeah. Well, not that we did obviously initially at the start of lockdown, but now. Um, so yeah, when, when they go back to work and school, then you know it'll be just me and Sasha again, and that's kind of yeah, like lockdown again. <laughs> yeah, I find that really really interesting that you can just tell that Sasha is really engaged and really intelligent and loves learning. It's just in the capacity that works for her. And I think that's how teaching should be anyway, that you you teach a child the way they need to be taught in order to thrive. And yeah, I, I take my hat off to you because yeah, it must be difficult if you, you've got, you've got the passion to want to teach your daughter, but she's like, yeah, but mom, you're, you're my mom. I don't want you to be my teacher. You're not my teacher. So, but the fact that she is self-teaching is actually really, really fantastic because I think most children generally it's hard for them to get them motivated to learn. So the fact that she's not only motivated to learn, but she's, she's doing it her way and she's thriving in that capacity is great. And I think that's almost a misconception I'd like to dispel with, with people with any disability, but especially like autism, that you can don't just assume that they don't have the capacity or the intelligence to want to learn. You just have to find the way that works for them. Yeah. That definitely that's right and and the subjects and the topics you know Aunt Sasha is very creative so for her it's all about art type subjects technology music all of those subjects so you know trying to teach her history or geography is not it's never going to work geography if it's more about natural world you know the wonders of the world that kind of thing but not in a boring school way <laughs> so they're definitely it's about how how and what is taught and who um, and, you know, a lot of children, a lot of autistic children, I would say, struggle with the size of the schools that we have these days. They're just, you know, mainstream schools are so huge, um, but, you know, very, very low ratios of, of staff to, to children as well. So there's not individual attention, which some children need. And obviously all of that comes with a cost. But actually, I think if they changed the way things were taught and made it more fun, then, you know, less children would need extra support. Yeah. So. It's, yeah, a whole system rethink is needed. Absolutely. <laughs> it's almost like all the parents and uh, children slash people of the world who are in education should be the ones running the education system because apparently the government don't know how to do it. So, <laughs> Do you have any strategies that can help support people with PDA? Yeah, so there's there's some, I mean, I have put them in a blog post, I'll be honest, but um, <laughs> I can go over them. There's some that, are, that help most of these, I think, um, parents who have children with PDA will relate to. Um, being flexible is my first one. And this goes for parents and educators as well. It's just the whole hard, fast rules and this is what you must and must not do is not a good thing for those with PDA because it just builds the anxiety, you know, having all those demands. Um, so yeah, being flexible, having that um, plan, you know, of X, Y, and Z. <laughs> if you, you know, as as a family, if we wanted to go out somewhere, I'd always be aware that Sasha might not be able to manage that, whether it's for noise reasons, transport reasons, whatever. So I'd always have like a, a back out, a get out plan for her, and you know, with me, obviously that would have to be. Um, so yeah, that's kind of one thing. Um, building relationships. So a relationship is so key. Someone with PDA really needs to, it's all kind of built on trust. 
and the person who's working with them understanding them and you know not just saying well you know you can't do that or don't do that and you know why would you not do that it's kind of trying to to get behind and understand what's causing the anxiety that makes them not be able to do something so yeah relationships are really important um i'd say offering choices generally helps although too many choices and things get um too confusing um so yeah keeping it kind of simple but definitely you know having real choices and what one thing that's often said about those with pda is they are um switched on enough to know if you're offering them one good and one bad choice so, <laughs> so that really doesn't work just because you want them to do something to have one that you know because then they still realize and then it's still a demand that they have to do that one choice that is mm -hmm. the one you're wanting them to do so so you yeah, have to be careful with that um, choosing words carefully and language that you use is so important. So I always laugh and say that we never use the word no with Sasha. Um, it's her favourite word, but only if she's using it. <laughs> so she likes to say no to things, but if we ever say no, and this obviously from a young age, you know, no would cause an extreme reaction, extreme sort of anxiety overload. Um, so we'd say, well, maybe not now, maybe we'll talk about that later or, you know, give a reason for why something is not possible if it really isn't. But we also started rethinking, you know, whether things were possible because you kind of set these typical parenting rules like, for example, no chocolate for breakfast, you know, what parent gives their child chocolate for breakfast. But actually, when you think about it, what time of the day does it really matter if a child has chocolate <laughs> and it's kind of you take yourself back and you start going yeah it doesn't feel right to give them chocolate for breakfast but actually as long as they're not having it for breakfast lunch and tea then you know it's not the end of the world and so we'll go with that because it's going to make the rest of the day go smoother Absolutely. um so yeah and think we... about all the chocolate type cereals and chocolate spreads <laughs> and things well, that yeah. we have and they are very much breakfast <laughs> oh well yeah exactly and full of sugar and everything so it's uh, it's under, but it's getting your head around understanding that you know things that are kind of been drummed into you maybe from a, a child and what you expect to happen and then changing that for, for your children um another thing another strategy is using humor so definitely sasha has the best sense of humor ever like I said, she likes things to be fun and not serious. So it's all a bit of a joke. And when she was young, you know, we'd say, oh, I bet you can't um, put your shoes on before I put mine on, you know, turning things into a bit of a competition, but not too much because competition is also a really difficult thing. Sasha cannot bear to lose anything, even against a computer generated, you know, random outcome that we have no control over. It re and I say can't bear, it really upsets her to an extreme amount and when she was younger it was the extreme reactions I think you know that led us to this pathological is another word really I would say for you know extreme mm. going on um so yeah that was noticeable and then the other two kind of strategies I say is trying to remain calm at all times which is really difficult when especially when you want to get out of the house you know and you know you've got an appointment or whatever and you're trying to get out for a certain time but you know that the more you rush your child the less likely it is they're going to leave mm. the house so you kind of you have to also get used to not talking through gritted teeth because they can pick up on any kind of change of tone as well <laughs> and if they know that you're stressed then that will send them down that path too so trying to be completely calm is it's an art form absolutely <laughs> can you teach me that because i don't even have children <laughs> well i mean i don't manage all the time but i've been doing it a long time now i'd say going down the end of the garden and screaming quite loudly once in a while helps as well <laughs> <laughs> but just not in earshot of, of um, yeah younger so and yeah just overall reducing demands is the other thing so the less you're trying to do in a day the less chance there is of getting overloaded i guess 
the things that help us anyway. Thank you so much. That's really insightful. And yes, you've definitely written about this on, on the blog and we will make sure that all the blog posts and um, well, your blog is linked in the show notes. What's the relationship like between Sasha and her sister? You write about this often, but just for the people listening to this, what, what is their relationship like? I do. And I think that's, I do get asked about it a lot, you know, sibling relationships. And I suppose the first thing to note is that all sibling relationships can be very tricky, you know, mm. depending on age range. But, you know, even neurotypical siblings with each other, it's never really smooth sailing, is it? So, mm. um, but there are extra challenges, obviously, involved. And, you know, certainly in a house like ours, where it feels or it seems like, you know, our youngest wants her own way all the time. Um, then that creates an imbalance, you know, and our eldest, oh, we could very easily see how she would think that is not fair. Um, and so we've had to work hard at um, trying to make life feel more fair for her. I don't, I don't know if it's about fair. I think it's more about, you know, we've made sure we talked about Sasha with her from a very young age. And of course, because she was diagnosed so young, you know, she's known you know, different behaviour. I think children are a lot more intuitive, really, than we give them credit for a lot of the time. So mm. our eldest knows exactly what buttons to press if she wants, you know, want Sasha to get upset. She, she doesn't do it because she doesn't want to see that reaction most of the time. But sometimes equally, you know, her patience runs out and she mm. will. So, you know, that's not her fault either. So we just talk it all over a lot with her and try and, you know, explain things. Um, it's difficult though, and it is at this stage, you know, we're finding at the teenage years, the challenge now is that Sasha, um, you know, being out of school and not finding it easy to socialize doesn't have the friends that she really craves, whereas her older sister does have, you know, friends and great social groups. And of course that's difficult for Sasha to see when her sister is, you know, having fun with friends. So trying, one thing I often say is space, trying to give them both space, you know, and we're lucky that there are different rooms in the house they can be in and then, we, you know kind of try to get them together after not forced but you know we'll have them together for shorter periods mm -hmm. so we're not trying to do things as a family as a as a whole all the time you know that family life that everybody expects to be having and sitting down for dinner all together or whatever it is mm -hmm. you know, we've had to let go of those ideals and we you know we don't all operate independently but you know sometimes and quite a bit of the time you do and that happens with teenagers anyway <laughs> that they want yes. to be more independent so so we have moved, but yeah, when, when the girls were younger, then they would play certain things together um, that, you know, generally didn't cause upset. So I, there was always a bit of that whole, you know, monitoring um, and trying to help relationships go along smoothly. And I think that's what, you know, it's kind of understanding, I suppose, where, what the sibling is feeling and how they could be you know, feeling it's all unfair. Trying to give them some quality time, separate treats out, separate trips out whatever it is, something to make them feel a bit special and that you obviously care about them because it is very demanding looking after someone with PDA because you do have to spend a lot of time with them and thinking about them and adjusting things to them. So it's trying to carve out some time for your sibling, I think is really important. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And as, as someone who's the, the eldest, so my sister and I have an almost nine year age gap and, um, I had already acquired my disability and she she's always seen me as a, as a disabled person growing up but she was also also because of the age gap she was a baby and a toddler and being 
dragged around to all these hospital appointments, physiotherapy appointments and stuff. So my parents, especially as she got older, made a great point of, of doing things with just her and giving her experiences one-on-one -on -one and spending quality time with her so that she knew it wasn't all about me, even though she could understand to a point that these things were important. She was never right. left behind or left out. And I think that's a, that's a difficult thing for any parent to do. As soon as you've got more than one child, to give mm -hmm. them equal attention with their personalities, with especially yeah. if they're teenagers and going hormones are raging and things must be difficult mm -hmm. anyway but to have a mm -hmm. child in the family that has a disability um knowing that they will inevitably take more of your time and attention to be able to try and yeah. give that back to the other child and balance it is mm -hmm. is tricky so i yeah i as, as a as a woman now who doesn't have mm -hmm. children but has nieces and nephews and then looks back on how i was parented and how me and my sister were parented I really do take my hat off to parents juggling the sibling that doesn't have the disability and how they aren't feeling left out. Yeah, but it sounds like, you know, it was done well for you and that's, you know, all you can hope for as a parent, you're trying to, I mean, you'd love, well, we would love, you know, a family all together, you know, doing things together, but it just doesn't really happen. So we've, you know, like I said, we've just had to accept that and doing things differently. It's also, it's just a different way you know, of doing things and it works fine, hopefully. <laughs> well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on, Steph. I've been reminded of how kind of tricky it is to navigate PDA as a person that, that doesn't have it. So as a parent and bringing two girls up and doing that as a, as a woman in lockdown and everything like that, it just, yeah, opens my eyes and I really hope it's helped day with the audience understand PDA a lot more. Anything else you'd like to add before you, you plug all the things out in the world for people to come <laughs> find you? Oh no, just thank you for talking to me. It's really nice speaking to you as well. And yeah, like I said, just the more people who can hear about and know about PDA, the better as far as I'm concerned. So yeah. That's what I asked for. So if, uh, yeah, if anyone wants to find me, um, my blog is Steph's Two Girls. So it's www.stephstewogirls.co.uk. And then I'm across all sorts of social media. So I have my Facebook page, Twitter, and I'm on Instagram. And all of those, I'm at Steph's Two Girls. So again, S-T-E-P-H-S-T-W-O-G-I-R-L-S. And then I also have a couple of videos on YouTube, but not really doing a lot of them. <laughs> but, but yeah, definitely, um, anyone, it's free to get in touch and ask me any questions. I'm always happy to try and help where I can. Brilliant. And you mentioned the, um, is it the PDA Society? Would you yes. like me to link that as a resource as well? Please, that'd be great. Yeah, the PDA society.org.uk I think is their website and yeah that's got a whole wealth of information on there and they thank are a charity yes thank you so much for your time today I hope people get lots of value from this I'm looking forward to the episode going out because since you know following your journey over the last kind of five years I think I've been online I've learned so much and I know that we all digest things in different ways and I think that's probably why I've decided to start the podcast because you've you've greatly been on my blog before talking about being a carer um yeah. and that was well received but i really want to help 
by sharing other people's stories and bringing more awareness to things that I know nothing about, or at least a little bit about through, through knowing you and other people online talking about it. So that's such a great idea. So yeah, can't wait to hear the others as well. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Purple Elephant, Pathological Demand Avoidance, with me, your host, Sassy Wyatt, and our lovely guest today, Steph Curtis. I really hope you found this podcast episode interesting. I have learned so much from Steph over the years about PDA. Please do go check out the resources and follow her on all social media. And let's hope this episode has helped you to become a better human being.